through the drama of biblical events, we have watched a great reversal take place in the thinking and lives and actions of the most unlikely converts uh, to Jesus Christ. Uh, First, we observed a criminal hanging on his own cross next to Jesus. At first, the criminal hurled insults at Christ along with another criminal and all the crowd that had gathered, even though he himself was dying an excruciating death by crucifixion. But something happened, and the eyes of that one dying thief were opened, weren't they? And he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What a reversal. A personal reversal. He went from insulting Christ to worshiping Christ. He went from mocking the Lord to making the Lord his master. And then, if you've been with us in this short series of studies, darkness fell. Great, powerful statements were made by our Lord from the cross, fulfilling Scripture, undeniably placing himself as the atoning sacrifice paying the penalty in full for the sins of the world as the capable and the final Passover lamb. The centurion had seen a lot of men die. In fact, 30,000 of them, according to history, had been crucified in this region already by the Roman Empire. The centurion and his soldiers had, had seen a lot of men die, but then they saw this man die. And as Christ commended his spirit into the hands of God his Father, the centurion makes this complete reversal and he says there, truly this man was the Son of God. What a great reversal. The centurion turns from unconcerned for Christ to announcing that Christ is the Son of the living God. The blinders come off. And the king of darkness loses two more to the king of light. This is the glorious reversal of regeneration. We've seen it take place in the life of a, of a criminal condemned to die. We watched it take place in the life and from the lips of a centurion. And today we're going to watch it occur in the life of a chief justice. Now of these three men, he is the only one named in the Bible. His name is Joseph. He's going to appear out of nowhere. He he was there all along. We just didn't know it. Let me take you to Luke's gospel, chapter 23. Even though all four gospels mention him, we'll we'll use Luke as as home base. I want you to know as you're turning that it's going to be the cross of Christ that brings Joseph to an open display of faith in the Messiah. And it will be one amazing reversal. Luke chapter 23, verse 50, reads, And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God, verse 52. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. He took it down, wrapped it in a linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. Now Luke will give us at least three descriptive phrases that introduce us to this particular individual. First, we're told that he had a highly respected 
position. Luke writes here that Joseph was a member of the council. This is a reference to the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel, composed of 70 men. It also included the standing invitation was given to the high priest who also served. Mark's gospel informs us that Joseph was not only a member of the Sanhedrin, but that he was a prominent member of the council, Mark 15, verse 43. In other words, uh, Joseph was not only a chief justice at Israel's supreme court, he was one of the most highly respected among them. What he said carried great weight. He had tremendous influence. He was a ruler among rulers with great influence and power among the people, which only adds to the tragedy of his testimony up to this point when you realize he has said nothing in defense of Christ. Now you notice Luke writes here in verse 51 that Joseph had not consented to their plan and action, that is the plan of the Sanhedrin to do away with Christ. But that doesn't mean that he defended Christ. In fact, John's gospel reveals why Joseph and other rulers who had believed in Christ and yet kept it secret. He writes in chapter 12, Nevertheless, many of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, that is publicly, lest they should be put out of the synagogues, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. In other words, they didn't want to lose their reputations. They didn't want to lose the approval of men. You could literally render that the glory of men. They were more interested in the glory of men than the glory of God. And had they confessed faith in Christ, if they had revealed to their world that they really did believe he was God's anointed, they would have been excommunicated from the synagogue, which was the very center of Jewish life and faith. John writes, they were not confessing him. In fact, the tense of that verb, confessing, indicates that they were actually shrinking back more and more as the pressure got turned up. The turmoil of these days increased and they shrunk back from confessing him. Now, while we're told that there were rulers who love the glory of man more than the glory of God. And John adds an, an insight into the biography of Joseph by, by telling us that Joseph, listen to this, he became a disciple of Jesus. Literally, he had become a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. Now, evidently, Joseph had heard the Lord teach. He'd probably witnessed a miracle or two enough to confirm his faith that this was indeed the Messiah. It's possible he heard him preach as the rulers would come to try to trip Jesus up. And he and that company listened to the wise responses of Christ. He knew that only God could teach with that kind of authority. And of course, everyone was amazed when he did. He knew as the rabbis had taught that only God had the power over the grave and he'd watch Jesus raise some from the dead. He was marked by this. He was amazed by it and it moved his heart eventually to faith in him, but it was a secret for fear of the Jews. Joseph knew as time went along that the Jewish leaders were envious of Christ's popularity and they would become bent on destroying him, Mark 14.1. 
He watched as the hosannas quickly died away. The crowd went from crown him to crucify him in a matter of days, Matthew 21, 15. These are very dangerous times. And life is marked in Jerusalem by those who are with him, Christ, and those who are against him. And everyone who was with him was running. Peter would have gotten his own cross had he not denied the Savior. Besides, John, all the other disciples had already run for their lives. In fact, after Christ's burial, they would all be hiding out, John writes in chapter 20, verse 19, for fear of the Jews. Same phrase used to describe Joseph. So if we're not too hard on Peter and Andrew and and Matthew and James, let's be careful to not drop the hammer so quickly on Joseph. He happens to be one of the prominent chief justices of Israel who would, it would appear, have a lot more at stake than a group of fishermen. The truth is we identify with all of them and we may identify with Joseph today. Perhaps this is you. This is the Christian student in middle school or high school who sits in a class and the teacher asks, if you believe that God created everything, let me just see where you are. And no hand is raised. This is the college student who's invited to a party, but he doesn't want to say why he doesn't want to go and be a part of that, so he just says, well, I'm just not feeling well. This is the businessman who's invited to golf on a Sunday morning. Beautiful day out there. Crowd's a little thinner in here. I imagine that's applicable. (laughs) But instead of saying, you know, I go to church on the Lord's Day, he says, well, you know, I'm just not any good. That may be true, but that's not the reason. This is the businessman or woman who was asked along with all the other employees to go through diversity training in their company. And the trainer begins by asking, is there anyone here who believes the biblical record that homosexuality is wrong? And no one speaks. This is the average Christian in America who has yet to tell anyone in their world the gospel of Jesus Christ. I remember standing in a visitation line waiting to greet the family member of a the family members of a deceased man, a well known man in our community. Standing in front of me was a believer I knew, even though he went to another church, a friend of the deceased. While we were standing there, I asked him if the deceased man was a believer. He immediately got tears in his eyes and he said to me, You know, we worked together, we took road trips together, but I never told him I was a Christian. God never came up. Joseph didn't consent with the Sanhedrin, which means he just abstained from voting. His hand never went up. Now, we're told that that Joseph not only had a respected position, but secondly, I want you to notice that, that Joseph was a man with a godly reputation. In fact, if you look back at the text at the latter part of verse 50, Luke says, he was a good and righteous man. He's the only man in all of Luke's gospel that Luke uses this adjective. He's the only man Luke calls good. He was a good man. You would expect, had you known Joseph, that Joseph would always do the right thing. Righteous. 
He, he was concerned about his, his relationship being right with God. You can count on Joseph. Wherever Joseph's going, that's right. He stands for the right things. He cares about God. That would all be true. He's a good man. If power corrupts, Joseph has somehow sidestepped the temptation. You add some other clues to this, and you discover that Joseph is also rich. He's a well-connected man. He's so well-connected to Pilate that he walks in, gains a private appearance before Pilate, and asks for the body of Jesus, and Pilate says, that'll be fine, you can have it. Somehow, this man who was well-connected and, and wealthy and prominent, preeminent in his position, and all of that, he had risen to the top of the food chain. And, and it's there where you watch men go from good to bad, right? You watch them go from, from selfless to, to selfish. Corrupts. But at this stage, he is a good man. And he's righteous. He's concerned about being rightly related to God. What kept this man in check? What, what was the boundary in his heart and life? I think that would be the next descriptive phrase. Joseph not only had a prominent position and a godly reputation, but he, he lived with a heavenly expectation. Look at verse 51. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. It's freighted with meaning. He, he's literally longing for the time of spiritual renewal and national repentance, the rule and reign of God's anointed. He's waiting for it. He's longing for it. What governed his life the most was not his position, was not his power, was not the prestige of his position, his preeminence, his wealth, none of that. What mattered most to this man was the kingdom of God. And he longed for it. He wanted to see the anointed one come and take the throne of David. We have every reason to believe that, that Joseph fully anticipated Jesus Christ fulfilling the mandate and, and, and that messianic role of overthrowing world rulers and establishing his kingdom on earth. He, like the Jews around him and to Jews even to this day, do not understand the difference between Messiah's first coming to suffer and Messiah's second coming, now separated by 2,000 years, as sovereign. Joseph was expecting it. He'd heard Jesus. He'd seen him. He knew this was the anointed one. And he's saying to himself in his heart, somewhere along the line, I'm going to come out and identify. I'm going to walk forward and, and I'm going to state my claim that I am one of his disciples. And maybe I'm going to wait till he gets a little closer to establishing the throne of David. I'll make my faith known then. I'll wait. The time's not right. It's still a little tumultuous. In fact, it seems to be getting more and more this way. And, and now everything has changed. Christ is on a cross. Death is only hours away. Joseph, perhaps with other rulers, in fact, I think the entire Sanhedrin showed up. The scriptures imply that many rulers were there. They were mocking him. Joseph was silent because at this point in time, he had already concocted a plan. He had decided 
which is amazing. The cross for him was the crossroads between silent Christianity and courageous Christianity. And as he stood there and watched the Savior die, his heart was beating faster and faster and faster. The the death of Jesus Christ would be for him the defining moment. It would be this great reversal of life and thinking that would now publicly mark him as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Luke tells us here in verse 52 that this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So when Jesus uttered his last, Father, into thy hands I commit my, or commend my spirit, at, at, at that Jesus dies, Pilate knows he's dead, and he leaves to go and meet with Pilate in this private appointment to ask for the body of Jesus. So get the picture in your mind. While the priests are rushing to inform the Sanhedrinists and more than likely the high priest that the curtain has been torn in two, opening up, exposing the Holy of Holies to everyone. Joseph is rushing to the Roman governor. While the high priest is red in the face, telling the priest to go back and sew it up. Forget what you've seen. Let's prop this thing up, which they did. They kept a defunct religion going until the temple was destroyed. Sew it up! While they're doing that, the priest feverishly sewing the curtain back up. Joseph has been granted permission by Pilate to take down the body of Jesus Christ. And then the Sanhedrin is going to stagger underneath fresh news that is as startling and certainly devastating to them. One of their own. One of their own. In fact, one of the prominent members of the Sanhedrin has just declared his belief in Jesus, taking him to be buried in his family crypt. It cannot be. This can't be. You need to understand that as soon as the body of Jesus is requested by Joseph, the entire religious world is going to be thrown into an uproar. This is front page news. And the headlines, as I would imagine, would read something like, Chief Justice Vindicates False Messiah. Sanhedrinist sides with criminal. Turncoat in the Supreme Court. There's no turning back. Secrecy is now shattered by this public act. You see, Joseph is not going to allow Jesus to be treated from this point as a criminal. He is going to bury him like a king. The great reversal then has taken place. From secrecy to testimony. From spectating to participating. From cowardice to to courage. He's thought about it. In fact, as I'll show you in a moment, he's thought about it for several days. And he and another man, Nicodemus, also secretly following Christ, will collaborate in this amazing plan that will cost them effectively everything. It occurred to me as I studied this that God has already used a man named Joseph to guard the birth of the Messiah. And now he will use a man named Joseph to guard the burial 
of the Messiah. Now, why would that be important? Why would a certain kind of burial be critical that only a man like Joseph could provide? Why would that be important? Well, let me give you several reasons. First of all, because the Scriptures declared this unusual prophecy that Jesus Christ would be buried with the rich, which would be highly unlikely, by the way. Jesus Christ is the adopted son of a migrant worker. They have eked out their existence, hand and mouth, in, in carpentry. Jesus has learned to trade. He has assumed the role, assuming Joseph has passed away. He is the carpenter, and at the age of 30, enters the ministry. He'll be dead in three years or so, and he owns absolutely nothing. No home, not even a pillow he claims is his own to lay his head at night. He borrows everything, which is the role of a bondservant. He borrows a boat upon which to ride and preach. He borrows guest rooms. He borrowed a cup to drink from a Samaritan's hand. He borrowed a colt upon which to ride into Jerusalem. He borrowed an upper room. He, he, he borrowed a tomb temporarily. Even his unique seamless garment, his tunic, was a gift by some loving seamstress. He was poor. But Isaiah prophesied in chapter 53, verse 9, he will be with a rich man in his death. And so he was with Joseph. And isn't it interesting that the Scriptures are fulfilled even to the financial standing of the man who buries him? Secondly, the burial that Christ has given by Joseph protected his body from being broken and torn apart. You need to understand that the Romans controlled this entire crucifixion scene. They also controlled the body and its disposal. The prophecies, we've already looked at it in Psalm 34 verse 20, makes it clear that no bone of Christ would be broken. It would become only one more identification of Christ with Passover lambs who were to be sacrificed without any bones being broken. But the Romans had absolutely no respect for the corpses of criminals And they often took them down and left them on the hill for wild dogs overnight and vultures to dispose of. In fact, the bodies of criminals were most often never buried. It would be another declaration of the crimes they committed, and you'd better be warned because if you go against the state of Rome, this could happen to you. They were often simply left there for scavenging animals. One author wrote that Golgotha was so named the place of the skull simply because it was littered with the skulls of previous crucifixions. It's also just as likely that the body of Jesus would have been taken by the Jewish leaders to the Valley of Hinnom, where perpetual fires are burning, where the unclaimed bodies as well as criminal corpses were thrown and burned. It was called the Valley of Ashes. It was also nicknamed the Valley of Corpses. It is, by the way, the valley that Christ used more than anything else as an illustration of the fires of hell. So it would have pleased the religious leaders more than anything to have taken Christ to the place he used as an illustration of hell and threw him there into that valley, not only breaking bones along the way, but allowing his body to be placed in the place Christ used as that which would indicate the displeasure of God. 
That would be the ultimate end. Joseph will keep this from happening by his now very courageous testimony and belief in this one as the anointed. Third, the grave would serve as confirmation of Christ's death. It would give a place to confirm that he was in fact dead. The Roman seal would have confirmed that this was in fact the grave where Christ was buried. There would be no question. They didn't have the wrong address. There wouldn't be people going, well, it wasn't there. It was probably somewhere else. That was it. The Romans, in fact, would not have released the body without confirming it was dead. Pilate, if you remember the record of Mark 15, 44, he was, he was surprised that Jesus was so soon dead, and he demanded confirmation from the centurion. Only after the centurion confirmed that he is dead, we put a spear into his heart, that Pilate would release the body. All of this adds to the credibility of the witnesses of Christ's resurrection. This was the tomb. This is the stone sealed. Behind it is a corpse, a dead, failed, false Messiah. This would be a mountain of evidence that Jesus Christ had truly died. A woman once wrote, J. Vernon McGee, a radio preacher. How many of you have heard him on the radio with that very slight Texas accent? (laughs) She wrote to him and said, Dr. McGee, my pastor preached last Sunday that Jesus didn't really die. He just swooned or fainted. And the disciples simply revived him later. What do you think? McGee wrote back, and I quote, Dear Madam, I recommend you whip your pastor at least 40 times. (laughs) You jam a crown of thorns down on his head. Nail him through his hands and feet to a cross. Run a spear under his ribs and through his heart. Then take him down and wrap him tightly in a hundred pounds of spices. Leave him for three days in an airless tomb and then see if you can revive him. Isn't that great? Now remember that because we all want to use that one day, okay? Well, the fact that Joseph acted with unusual courage as an associate now of this one allowed then for the fulfillment of scriptures about his burial by a rich man, protected his body from being broken, served as confirmation of Christ's death, One more, fourthly, Joseph's tomb will serve then as a witness to the resurrection. That stone, according to the gospel accounts, was not rolled away. It was literally thrown off the track. That two-ton boulder was tossed aside. Not to let Christ out, by the way, but to let people in. On Resurrection Sunday and for days and weeks after, many people went there to observe Keep in mind, the tomb wasn't really empty, was it? In fact, there was something left behind so incredibly strange that it caused John the Apostle to believe that Christ had risen from the dead when he saw it. Had Jesus been buried by a poor man, he would have been bathed and then wrapped simply in linen strips, but not a burial by a rich man. 
to rich men. In fact, the Gospel of John informs us that Nicodemus shows up. They timed it all. Joseph would show up with a body. Nicodemus would come with a hundred pounds of spices. Maybe a donkey or two to carry it all. That would have cost an average man in this century a lifetime of savings. Linen sheets would be torn into strips. The body would be wrapped, each limb separately, and then the entire body. The overlapping edges of the linen would be coated with spices, some of them dry, some of them mixed with water to create a gummy substance that allowed the linen strips to adhere to one another as they're wrapped, so they stay in place. The end result would look something like what we think of when we see a a picture of a mummy. Now several days have gone by, allowing for those gummy spices to harden, creating a shell over the feet and body, a shell of linen. When John arrived at the tomb on that Lord's Day, he rushed in and he, and he saw the grave clothes, the linen wrappings lying there, that is, as they were, in the form of a body. And John writes in his gospel account, chapter 20, verse 8, and seeing that, John believed. Because it would have been a rather stunning sight. It would have been slightly caved in in the midsection. No opening. No evidence of tearing or ripping. No sign of a struggle by disciples who came in hastily to get him out and take him away so they could say he rose from the dead. Just empty. It's just a cocoon. And there's no one inside it. Had you been there as the body of Jesus was raised at that moment, his body glorified, you would not have seen Jesus struggle to sit up, unwrap those linen strips one at a time, or or maybe even burst through them. That would have been evidence of resuscitation, not a resurrection. Linen would have been scattered everywhere. The only thing set aside was the, the linen napkin that he folded that had been on his face. So here in a courageous disciple's family tomb is a cocoon, as it were, and the conqueror of death has vanished. This tomb is Joseph's public testimony of faith. Like the dying thief, he also was waiting for the coming kingdom. They didn't know what we know. They didn't know everything with progressive revelation and now a completed canon of Scripture in our laps and in our hands. But perhaps Joseph and Nicodemus had gone back in light of Christ and they scoured messianic prophecies Perhaps they came across Psalm 1610 again, where where the Messianic prophecy says that the anointed will not be allowed to suffer decay, a reference to death. It's possible they believed a resurrection would occur and the tomb would only be needed for a little while, but isn't it ironic? All the disciples who had openly followed Jesus while he was alive, they've now all run away. And the one who was silent while Jesus is alive now 
steps forward after Jesus died. I don't want you to miss, though, what this meant to Joseph because you need to understand his life would be forever changed. It would never be the same. For starters, he's now, because he's been dealing with a corpse, he is now considered, of course, ceremonially unclean. He's now going to miss the Passover. That's the high moment of the Jewish calendar. He's going to miss that now. I wonder if he really cared. Did he, did he know or think perhaps that, that, that Passover, as we will find later from the writings in the New Testament apostles, that, that, that that's just a shadow of past traditions and Christ is the substance. Christ, the Passover lamb, is now the only celebration. That is in all, the Jewish leaders had already made it clear that anybody who declared faith in Jesus Christ would be excommunicated from the synagogue, John 9, 22. So not only is he ceremonially defiled and unable to celebrate the Passover, on the following Sabbath or maybe a week out, he and his family would find the doors barred to them. They can no longer enter. We're not given any reference to his wife. Or family, but we do know it was required of members of the Sanhedrin to be married men. While there's no reference to his wife in this drama, you can count on the fact that Joseph has changed her life forever as well. And from the plans that he carried out, there isn't any doubt in my mind that there was collusion with his wife. Support. They would put their lives out in the open. They would give vast resources. They would change everything. You need to understand that that, that Joseph would have been defrocked and dismissed from the Supreme Court by the high priest and others that he had openly defied by this statement of faith. And you need to understand as well that he has united with a ruined cause. As far as the religious leaders and the populace at large would have thought, this would have been on the tongues of every gossip in the community. They, they would have been talking about Joseph's name is the one they're talking about as well. Can you believe it? One of the prominent men, one of the rulers, one of the leaders, one of the Sanhedrinists, Joseph of all things, he has cast his lot with, with, a, with a, not only a false Messiah, but a dead one. What is he thinking? Like the thief on the cross who demonstrated faith in a dying Savior and the centurion who demonstrated faith as soon as the Savior died, now Joseph is adding his testimony to this. And this man who's been too afraid to say anything about his faith in Christ while he's alive now says everything having watched Christ die. Why? Because the blinders have come off. Because the grace of God has moved in his heart. He now knows that everything needs to go in reverse. First the criminal, then the centurion, and now the chief priest. They didn't know everything, but they knew Jesus Christ was the Son of the living God. They knew and believed that He was the anointed. He was the promised deliverer. And now they care about Him more than anybody else. Oswald Chambers, in his classic work, wrote it this way. The remarkable thing about fearing God 
is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. When you do not fear God, you fear everything else. And this man, now with singular passion and faith, trusted in the Son of God. What do we observe in the life of this man for us? Well, let me ask you, what's needed in your life today? Maybe I would suggest that for all of us, we need something of a a reversal. Maybe for some of you, it's a reversal from unbelief to belief. What you need to do is, is claim him as your Messiah. Don't put it off. Not another day. There isn't a better time to step forward and declare faith in him. Not a better time than now. Perhaps for you, you're you're a Christian. You need a reversal of some sort, maybe from spectating to participating, maybe from secrecy to giving testimony, from cowardice to to courage. Maybe maybe it's just from apathy to, to activity. No matter what your friends say or your colleagues say or your neighbors say or your family says or your classmates say, you will take your stand for Christ and you need to ask God to help you get ready for tomorrow because tomorrow now starts for you a reversal of standing for Christ, taking a step forward for Christ. I love that old proverb that puts it this way rather humorously. He who deliberates only before taking a step, will spend his entire life on one leg. It's good. Start moving. Joseph evidently did. Now, he disappears from, from Scripture as quickly as he appeared. Tradition has tracked his discipleship under the tutelage of Philip, one of the first deacons, selected in the Jerusalem church. You, remember, you, you may remember that Philip was the disciple that in Acts chapter 8 is whisked away by the Spirit of God to deliver the gospel to an Ethiopian. He's riding along in his chariot reading Isaiah and he's stumped and Philip shows up. Philip, if you study his life, was always bringing people to the Lord. According to tradition, Joseph was trained and then he and his family sent as missionaries to what we now know as England. Supposedly, he landed in A.D. 61 and settled in Glastonbury and served there for the rest of his life. We do not know if if that's true. What we do know from history is that one of the first Christian assemblies in England dedicated to the gospel of Jesus Christ was located in Glastonbury. And what we know for certain from Scripture is that this once secret disciple, filled with fear, delivered a courageous testimony to the gospel of a dying, buried, soon-to-be-resurrected Lord. He experienced a great reversal. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this brief biography of Joseph because we've needed to look into the mirror of the Word. And I pray for that unbeliever sitting here today. 
that your spirit would so move in their hearts that the blinders begin to fall away and they believe the gospel of Christ. If that's you today, my friend, and you also sense in your heart and spirit this longing, maybe you've had questions and you want to talk about that. Maybe you're a Christian today, and our services are designed for the believing assembly, and so I speak mostly to Christians, but maybe for us, we need to be challenged to get past what has become the traditional cop-out for the believer who says, I, well, I just live for him. That's great. You need to. Before you ever open your mouth, you want a life that backs it up. But faith comes by hearing. Somebody has to communicate the gospel to you in order to be saved, and you must communicate the gospel to someone else in order for them to be saved. Are the dying lost people around you? Do they have the blessing of a disciple who is willing to raise his hand, who is willing to speak no matter what? Father, may that be us. May we become, as the early church, an assembly of informal missionaries who take every opportunity to deliver the truth to people you bring into our world. We pray it would be so. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.